You're listening to Look at My Records. This is episode 175, and I'm your host, Tom Gallo. For this edition of the podcast, I chatted with Max, Colin, River, and Trey of the Bay Area post-punk outfit, Pardoner. The band just released their ferocious third full-length, came down different on one of our favorite labels, Hoboken's Bar None Records. During our interview, we touched on an array of topics, including the band's proclivity for writing wry and clever lyrics, their love of both Polvo and Yola Tango, what it was like recording came down different with Jack Shirley at Atomic Garden Studios, and a whole lot more. Plus, the band picked some awesome records from my collection from the Meat Puppets, Bay Area, Legends, Grass Widow, and good old Uncle Bob Pollard. That's right, some solo Robert Pollard stuff. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look at My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms. Please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. I also encourage you to check out the Look at My Records website where you can find reviews, premieres of new music, playlists, and a whole lot more. Check it out at lookatmyrecords.com. All right, here for another episode of Look at My Records. So happy to have Max, Trey, River, and Colin of San Francisco slash Vancouver's Pardoner. How y'all doing today? Good. Good, man. How about since we got four people on right now, just take a take a second to introduce yourselves and what you play in the band. I'm Trey. I play guitar. And uh, I sing sometimes. I'm River. I play drums. Uh, I'm Colin. I play bass. Uh, I'm Max. I, I play guitar and sing too. Excellent. So before we get into your awesome new album, come came down different out on the amazing Hoboken, New Jersey bass label Bar None Records. Let's take a couple steps back band's been around for about five or six years tell me a little bit about how this project started uh we all went to college together we're buddies from school and uh me and river and colin were in like a fairly short-lived kind of like punk oriented band called mom's a long time ago, like 2014. And then um, after we stopped doing that, we, me and River and Trey started bonding over like Polvo and Yola Tango and stuff. And um, yeah, just started listening to tunes together and trying to make some of those ourselves. Uh and that's pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, we we were we were originally going to be called Tile Breaker after the Polvo song. I think we may have even played a show under that moniker once. Mm-hmm. 
I, our first show was yeah, Tilebreaker. Tilebreaker, yeah. And why'd you decide to change um, your name then? I think we just kind of didn't w- really want to like I don't know be kind of just a straight up polvo worship band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's still, it's kind of ironic because even still, we, every write up or interview we've ever had still talks about that. So it's pretty much the same. But, you know. It's cool. It's cool that you mentioned Polvo and Yola Tango in the same sentence because I feel like you wouldn't necessarily lump them together as far as similar sounding bands what do you see is the connection between those two or if do you see a connection between those two i think personally also it was like you know time kind of gets all compressed so now it's like i found out about yola tango and polvo around the same time from these guys actually so in my head it's like good music i found out with my friends and got really into, I could understand, like, at the time, Yola Tango fans were probably not the biggest Polvo fans, and maybe vice versa, but, like, I I find, like, you know, it just, to me, has, like, sonically kind of the same era of music. Right. And then, as, like, influences, it's easier to kind of just take what you like from them. I think you can mesh them sonically, too, like... Both bands have really harsh sounding parts and then really beautiful parts kind of meshed together. Yeah. Well, that's like the fun part, right? Right. Like trying to make weird stuff, like bad, loud stuff sound good in a song. Yeah. Yeah. I would also, yes, argue that they're both psychedelic bands, essentially, you know? Totally. For lack of a better word. Um, Yeah. They both have a lot of guitar heroics. I would say between like Ash Bowie and yeah, Ira, I'd say they're like two super distinctive players that are probably the biggest influence on the way I play personally. Yeah. They're both guitar heroes in my opinion. Yeah, definitely Ira, Yeah, but I've seen Yola Tango like a, oh, yeah. a gazillion times. So I've seen what he's done in person. And I've never seen Polvo live, yeah. on, you know, because... Same. Yeah, yeah I kind of missed the boat on that. I think that when Polvo reunited for In Prism, I think, and then the one at Siberia or something, I was, like, still kind of just getting into that band. So by the, when they were touring, I didn't really make a point to catch them. And I What do you remember have. about your early practices and collaborations they were loud. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah, we had like just a couple songs written and we like would jam at like a plug and play spot. Yeah. Um, really small. And it was just for drums, but we put all of the gear in there. And it blew out the fuses of Max Max's amps, all of them. Yeah, it melted. We had to stop using that spot because every time we would go there, like, our shit would just, like, start sparking (laughs) stuff. Yeah, and, like, frying, yeah. Yeah, and it melted, uh, melted River's Mesa Boogie Heartbreaker. Damn, I'm glad the band survived that shit. 
It sounds really intense. Hey, intense like bad omens, but it wasn't a bad omen because you're still going strong. That was cool. I think that room was literally like like six feet by six feet. It was like yeah. <laughs> so tiny. <laughs> we were like on top of each other a lot. Yeah, kind of during that time. Um, but it was cool. I also feel like, you know, it's kind of fun to like work with severe limitations. Something that's also really cool about the four of you as a band, since you're all college buddies and went to school in San Francisco, and from just observing the San Francisco scene from afar over the years, especially during the period that Pardoner has been active, there's such a wide range of different sounding bands that exist in the music scene there. So I'm curious, as far as the four of you playing together going to college in San Francisco, how did being part of that scene, scene kind of guide or shape your, your sound basically to what this record uh, came down different sounds like uh, now today? Uh, that's a really good question. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Trey, what do you think? <laughs> um, I don't know if we've necessarily like been super I don't know like influenced by like a lot of other bands in the bay necessarily like I what? think I mean like you're always like influenced by other bands obviously but I don't know I'd like to think that we always are just trying to like do our own thing I guess but I don't know do you yeah maybe yeah. not super influenced by the bands in the bay but influenced in other ways by because i feel like the big thing with you guys was like garage rock was still happening when you yeah. guys started this project like i was in a garage rock band at the time <laughs> uh, and it was like yeah. kind of seemed intentional to me that you guys wanted to do something different mm -hmm. like if weirdly it was like the inverse it was like, let's do something yeah. that's not the direct influence that everyone's doing right now. Right. I also feel like San Francisco is um, just like a relatively really small scene, maybe, compared to like other national scenes and stuff. So like the um, kind of like trends that the bands kind of fall in, like, you know, when we started, it was like garage rock and then right after we started it was like really big like shoegaze and stuff like were and like every band kind of sounded like that and then egg punk and stuff happened <laughs> and like so i feel like yeah like yeah i guess we we definitely were like you know like chorus <laughs> pedal rockers and for a while what, max and trey were you who was it that was in a hardcore band before uh this this started well max and Colin and River played in a, a hardcore band, and then we we've all been like in in hardcore bands and stuff. Me and River still play are like in a hardcore band right now. Oh, but. nice! Well, because it seems like you definitely bring that energy to Pardoner. Um, yeah, I, in in some ways, yeah, I think that uh, this is well, I don't know, like 
uh, some of our stuff is definitely more like that than others, but I think it's just something that we uh, have always kind of listened to, if not always like making it. So I think it kind of naturally comes through in, in some ways. I think on this record, maybe more explicitly than others that we've done, pers- like, at least I would think so. But um, yeah, nothing, uh, nothing too explicit in the hardcore realm for partner say. I think we're all also just influenced by like the bands that came like immediately after hardcore too, that like, that was just, you know, something like Fugazi, like that was all hardcore adjacent. band adjacent people doing a band that was a little more melodic and then we're influenced by that too. So it's kind of like, it's going to seep through no matter what. Yeah. I also feel like that's a pretty common common genesis story for a lot of like like indie rock band or at least the ones that i really like you know like a lot of those guys or people in those bands like come from um like punk before they do the whole like indie rock thing yeah natural progression and another thing i thought that was interesting about this record was you finished it completely like well before the pandemic started you finished recording this record in 2019 so it must have been not long after you put out playing on a cloud that you went back into the studio we did this one in 2020 actually we we wrote the songs in 2019 mostly but we we had finished recording this one, I think, in February 2020. So like, really, just like a month, pretty much before oh, okay. everything. So went. so like a. So what was it like then to have to basically sit on this record for almost over a year? Because by the time it comes out, it'll be well over a year since you left the studio to record it. Uh, do you feel disconnected to the songs at all since so much time has passed? Uh, personally, like in a certain way, you know, but this, I think this is kind of, at least for us so far, like, you know, the first record we put out, we also had sat on for a little while. Um, so yeah. And I personally also, I'm like, I have kind of a short attention span. So I feel like I'm always just like, trying to start working on something else um so that's kind of where i'm at now i guess i also feel like playing the songs live is kind of what makes me get detached from them you know it's like the repetition of playing them and since we haven't gotten to play in a year i'm kind of i'm actually they're still kind of fresh in my head yeah i would agree with that yeah Gotcha. A year of not playing them, it's like when we when the singles come out, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember this song. Like, like I like this song. I feel like I'm kind of like less sick of this album after all this time than I usually am with our records after waiting around. But yeah, I think that is because like we're already like usually writing a bunch of new stuff. Like, but with like the pandemic and stuff, we haven't really been like playing together a lot or whatever so like yeah we haven't like played these ones into the ground yet so but the process of how these songs came together was different because it seems like max you wrote most of these songs when you had already 
moved to Vancouver, right? And you kind of demoed them separately? Yeah, I mean, that's like pretty loose, though. Like, usually when I am demoing a song, or like with this one specifically, like when I demoed the songs that I did, um, they're, they're like pretty skeletal versions of the song. Like, I, by the time that they, like Trey and River and Colin, end up with their hands on it, it like changes pretty significantly. Because everybody's like, you know, writing and playing their own parts. And no matter what I do in preparation before that, it like, it's always going to change a lot. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I would say that the record was like far from done before we put it together. So like, as what was the dynamic of putting it together then since you live separately from uh, Trey, River and Colin in a you know, separate city. Um, yeah. So I demoed like a bunch of riffs and like, yeah, pretty like bass level versions, like without leads of like a lot of the, or like, you know, maybe half to three quarters of the songs. And then I went back to the Bay area and showed the songs probably first to Trey. And then he like would write his own stuff. And then we would bring it to, River and Colin and so on and so forth. So it kind of like builds from a really like building like a the first block and second and, and third and fourth. Is there any pressure in that process now that, you know, maybe you're only around for a little while and you kind of want to get it done type of thing? What was that like? Was there kind of like a was it a stressful thing or were you still kind of approaching it like, hey, you know, we're putting these songs together. If it happens, it happens. Next time I come back, we'll figure, figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I think we kind of had a deadline in mind. I feel like yeah. we were like, yeah. we are going to record an album. And, you know, you set, set up studio time, so there is kind of like a literal deadline. But yeah. I think we all just like playing music enough that we were practicing like twice a week, if not more. And that's mm -hmm. just fun. So it's like it didn't feel like it was like a pressure to succeed or something. We had stuff to work on and... We all yeah, liked yeah. being there, so it was just right. like, I don't know, just personally, I didn't feel like it was rushed or, like, forced or anything. It was like, we kept showing up and working on stuff, and it all felt good. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not like, it wasn't like a, a grind or anything. It was pretty, pretty uh, natural, I guess. I never really, I just feel like we never really had a thing where it's like, Oh, we need to get this done or something. Yeah, you know, these songs aren't really where they are. Because, like, we were also, I feel like we were making changes to them like a day before we went into the studio. Like, what was that one song yeah, you wrote yeah. like a week before we recorded? Uh, oh, yeah, one yeah, of them. Broadway. Broadway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had, I think we were practicing 12 songs. And then Max came with one a week before, and we learned that one. That one actually ended up on the record. Well, I mean, that was one that me and Trey had demoed out together like a long time before that, pretty much. And I think we had just maybe kind of mutually forgotten about it until the last so, second. What, what song was that? Was that Broadway? Yeah, Broadway. So what song was it the day before that you changed before going into the studio? Uh, fuck you. I remember we had yeah. to, like, we weren't sure how we were going to end it. And, like, every yeah. time we practiced it, we'd get to the ending and kind of try something else. And then I think, like, the day before we went to the studio, 
we were like, oh, we can do it faded, or like, we were going to do a fade out, and then we thought it'd be funnier to pretend like we were doing a fade out. <laughs> and then come back in. I think we also wrote that, like, um, little hardcore section in Lucky Day. Yeah. Like, a couple days before we recorded the record. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because that one was also just, like, a studio idea. We were like, I think we can... That was something Max really wanted to try, where we do, a, like, a punch-in of a completely different song. But we had no idea what it yeah. was going to be. And maybe... Yeah. We were talking about, like, some of the interludes on the album. Maybe punching in something like that. Yeah. Yeah, they showed up and wrote, like, a really funny hardcore thing. And <laughs> we just, like, yeah. learned that a day before. Yeah. It's funny because you're hitting on two of my favorite parts of the record. Uh, Fuck You, which I think may be my favorite song. It's a really powerful closer. And the cool, loud, quiet dynamics in Lucky Day. So I did want to ask you about Lucky Day. Really stands out to me. It really reminded me of a song on Jawbox's first record, Spiral Fix. Oh, it's actually off of their second album, Novelty. Yeah. Slow and quiet for the duration, but the chorus is super explosive. Yeah. How'd you decide to work in that really intense moment into the song? And wh- why do you think it fit there? Um, I don't know. Like, personally, anyway, like, when I demo the songs or when I'm doing demos, I do them on my four track <clears throat> and... I'm not really good enough at using that thing to like, like the tracks all just kind of run into each other and they make this weird like sloping effect where it sounds like one is is like going down at the same time the other's coming up. So I kind of wanted to try to emulate that. And me and Trey had been like kind of riffing on that main part in Lucky Day and thought it would be cool to put in something like really nasty there. Just to have a cool like change yeah i think we wanted to like get that effect like as if like another band like recorded over that track like on tape or something yeah but we just had to like do it with studio magic yeah (laughs) we got to do some cool studio stuff with it too like using his uh was it 16 track yeah that was a real task game 16 Oh, oh, shit, shit. That's, that's awesome. But just for that part. Yeah. And then, like... And you seem kind of bummed about it. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, yeah. we were like, you have one of those, right? And he was like, uh, yeah, hold on. And he had to, like, wheel it out. <laughs> he, was, yeah. he was cool. <laughs> he was, like, super stoked on it. Yeah, though. he got it. But also, I remember we kept having to try and place it, like, incorrectly in the song. Like, I feel like yeah. we were trying really hard to have it come in at, like, the middle of a measure, so it actually seemed like like the tape, you know, skipped or someone yeah, taped it over jumping. it. And it kept being, like, on beat. <laughs> and we are like, no, it has to, like, can we make it, like, sound more wrong? <laughs> it's still pretty much on beat. It's very close to being on beat, but I feel like we were, like, it was a funny thing to try and describe. And, like, <laughs> I ended, I ended up, like, yeah, because I, I, I drew that graph. <laughs> <laughs> you're like this would be the normal song could it come in yeah. here <laughs> like, yeah. like so. trying to give a grammy nominated like recording engineer like a <laughs> drawn sketch 
I mean, it's Jack. Jack is <laughs> he's super game for that kind of thing, but he is like you know the consummate professional. So I feel like trying to describe it to him, he was like, "Okay, okay." <laughs> nice. I think he's like, I think I understand based yeah, on your like, yeah, like, figure drawing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing that I really liked about Lucky Day was its message and placement next to Totally Evil System. I felt like it was this really like spot on critique of capitalism and shit, especially with the line, I work, you eat. Mm-hmm. And then with followed by Totally Evil System, even though it's an instrumental, the title yeah. kind of alludes to that as well. So I've felt like that was really really cool tell me about the combination of those two tracks and what your message was in those two songs and in terms of like yeah like the i don't know like the ethos or whatever like um i you know just being like a young working person who's coming into the world and stuff i feel like um every day i realized how naive I was yesterday (laughs) in a certain way so like uh just kind of coming to terms with like I'm gonna have to fucking work forever (laughs) like and it's like gonna be the same (laughs) Max I don't know about you because like clearly you wrote the title of it but like I the feelings I kept reminding myself of is like now we're in a band, but not in like college, and we all just have like jobs and are pretty much adults, yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. And it's like kind of, I don't know, it's like the first time where I'm like, I'm making like an active choice to be in a band and like yeah. do a bunch of shit to make money to still be in a band. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I have to like explain to my wife, you know? <laughs> like, today she was like oh like we should go to the store and then sit in the park because it's nice i was like no i have to do this thing (laughs) (laughs) still plenty of time to go to the park after this oh yeah it'll be nice you got it i feel like just being broke and being mad about it and like yeah it's like why don't i just get to have nice things and free time (laughs) a lot lot of it is like about kind of like thinking uh, like oh like I'm so broke but like I you know I get by just fine and there's like a lot of people obviously like a ton of people who are way worse off so a lot of the like complaints about capitalism and stuff are supposed to be pretty like uh, I don't know like self reflexive like trying to acknowledge that it's also coming from a place of privilege Interesting. Very deep. I didn't even think of that portion. I was just kind of looking at straight up, I work, you eat as kind of a very direct, powerful critique captured in that line, which I thought was a great line. So kudos. I think my favorite lyric on the entire album is on Spike, where you sing, give a man fish, he eats for a day. Give a man two fish, he throws one away. (laughs) Really awesome. Another great line. Tell me what you meant by that. I think I know what you were getting at, but I, I'm curious to hear what 
your perspective was on that one. Another great. great. It's quite great. Yeah. It's based on a true story, I right? Mean, Max, you <laughs> handed a man. Threw one away. It was crazy. Um, yeah, I think that's also, you know, supposed to be pretty self-reflexive and just like about excess in general and like how I notice it in, you know, myself and my surroundings and stuff. Like, um, I don't know, like, yeah, complaining about not having much. And then when I get it, I kind of don't really appreciate it and stuff. Yeah. So we've been talking about your lyrics and I read the interview you did with Bandcamp a couple of years ago where you talked about how important humor is in writing your lyrics and there's definitely this really strong dry wit basically on like every song. We just picked out two to talk about really smart, incisive lines that I found in the songs. Uh, are you inspired by any artists in particular or bands in that respect when you're thinking about or putting together lyrics, maybe even non-musicians? And um, how do you go about lyric writing? Usually I just like... Usually lyrics come first before the song. So I usually just like am writing all the time, like poems and stuff or whatever, or like little anecdotes. And I usually like dwell a lot on like really common phrases, like give a man a fish, he eats for a day, that kind of thing. And try to like think about like it's most perverse, like real world implications and like, um, yeah, I mean, and that's pretty much it. I try, I try to like write and then I usually write this like long, boring drivel and then I like try to put some jokes into it to like suck all the, I don't know, like self-seriousness out of it. So you, you do like kind of like self-punching up, as they'd say, in the, the industry. Sh- you sure. You punch it up yourself after you write something. Yeah, yeah. I try to check myself like for every line that I write that I think is like, Oh, this is like a really good line or like, this is like a big poetic statement or something. I try to think that that's funny because it is. And, and yeah, what about you, Trey? Um, I don't know. I, I don't write lyrics as much as Max. So I, I usually just try to, I don't know, write stuff. I think, sounds cool or whatever i i don't know (laughs) i do it um i usually write the lyrics after i write like some riffs or whatever yeah Yeah, max do you pair it sounds like you kind of approach your lyric writing separately from writing a song you'll write poems thoughts pop into your head you kind of write them down so then what's the process like for you of pairing something you wrote with music um i mean it kind of you know changes a little bit here and there like some songs like i think like donna said i wrote the lyrics after just because i like was humming a melody to it or something and it fit but then with like other songs like spike or something or more punk oriented tracks, it's easier to just like kind of get writing that I've done and kind of paste it on top. Um, although usually I, when I write a 
riff or something, I usually write it with like one of something I've written in mind, like for lyrics. Um, so like if I write something that is like funny and like supposed to be delivered fast, like it would be like a faster song or something. Similar question for Trey, because you do all of the album art and art for the records. How do you go about doing that as far as your process? Because, for instance, there's a song on the record called Bunny's Taxi, and the cover looks like a fucking freaked out bunny driving a taxi. So is that a doodle or a drawing that maybe you had, you know, in a book somewhere, and then you kind of like rediscovered it and thought, hey, this is good album art? Or is it something where you're sitting with the songs and you're like, well, this is actually a good representation of the music or um, stuff like that. The That one was like kind of the only um, drawing I feel like I've really done for the band that's been like super literal like that. I feel like I never really do it like directly referencing like a song or lyric or anything, but I just... For that one, I think we, I just thought it would be funny to like do a literal drawing of a bunny in a taxi. Um, especially cause like, I mean that, that song is like not about like, a you know, <laughs> a, a bunny. Uh, the lyrics have nothing to do with that. I just yeah. like, I don't know. Thought it'd be funny, I guess. Yeah. Most of the other drawings I do are just like kind of doodles or whatever. Tell me about Fuck You. We were talking about it before. And when I listened to it, another really powerful song on the record because of all the different musicians that it references. Bowie, Springsteen, Ian Mackay, Mary Timoney. But then there's also the the fuck you aspect and the lyric, I hope the apple falls far. So when I listened to it, it was, I felt like kind of your way of saying, we idolize a lot of these people, but we want to set our own course for our music and our art and things like that. I was curious... What was your intent with that song? I mean, that that's like pretty close. I mean, at least the way I think of it, like, <laughs> like, yeah, like it's it's not like a fuck you towards the the artists really that we're referencing or anything, but uh, you know, it's kind of like a fuck you to to me. <laughs> um, yeah, because like the lyrics are supposed to be like this is what I prioritize and stuff. And like, I put so much stock basically into like idol worship for like musicians and stuff. And like the world has changed so much that the same level of success isn't really transferable anymore. You can't really do it in the same way. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, I hope the apple falls far or whatever. It's just supposed to be like, I hope that the next generation is nothing like me. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Didn't we also call it fuck you because we were all going to 
just like yeah. yell fuck you at the end of the song yeah. but we didn't end up doing i think we just forgot like we yeah. wanted to do that <laughs> we were gonna do a big chant of all of us screaming fuck you in the studio and uh, we completely forgot yeah just ran out of time <laughs> uh, i don't know that song max the line i don't know if i've ever told you this but like line I love is the where you say learning all my lessons from some dumb old guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm always like, yeah, shit. Like I think a lot about all these just dudes with guitars, and <laughs> like I don't think that's necessarily the best place to no. get all of your information and personality from. Yeah. yeah, it's like oddly responsible for like too much of my personality, you know. Um, so that's kind of the 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 ethos or whatever for the song so i want to talk about the recording process you worked with jack shirley again on this record you've worked with him on your first record uncontrollable salvation and your second record uh, playing on a cloud what was it about working with him on those first two records that made you want to work with him again and uh what do you think made this recording process different compared to the uh, first two? Uh, I mean, he's like just super no bullshit. <laughs> like, he's really like, efficient. He's super easy to work with. Yeah. yeah. Um, I feel like we mesh really well with him. We have so much experience working with him now too that going in is just yeah. so... It's like natural and really fun. He kind of like yeah. gives us like freedom to do whatever we want and gives us like a space where we can record live. He's a good like tethering factor for us too. I think sometimes when we get to the studio, we're like, oh, like, dude, we should record that again. Or like, oh, like, what if we did this? And he'll kind of be like, you do not need to do that. <laughs> yeah. I think he's really good at like keeping us on track, yeah. especially because we generally don't book a lot of days to record so we yeah. like he's like if we're gonna get this done in two days like we gotta just like move on or whatever yeah. but he, he's weirdly yeah. kind of like the perfect mix of hands-on and hands-off right yeah. like the first yeah. hour i was there he was literally like twiddling knobs on my base for me yeah. and being like like, this is a P bass. Okay, like, I don't know about you, but this is, like, to me, the perfect settings on it. And I was like, okay. And, like, let him just, like, literally twiddle my knobs. And then after... Uh, <laughs> Hell yeah. You let him do uh, what? What? <laughs> Uh, but, yeah. And then after that, like, I think, like, a, he literally was, like, looking at Trey's pedal board, too, right? And, like switching some of them like he uh does all that but then after that's dialed in he just like leaves you alone right and so it was like kind of the it was like made us all sound good and then like kind of let us do our own thing after that he's so like cool and flexible with what we give him to we're literally like we're gonna book two days and record 14 songs and we don't have a lot of money and i guarantee and it will not go over 30 minutes which of course right. it did yeah. <laughs> yeah and he's like always so cool about it he's okay. down to hang out and yeah. he's the best yeah. i mean yeah when when i was like it's not going to be over 30 minutes and then like 
the first song we recorded, he was like, that song's four minutes and 15 seconds. <laughs> yeah, um, I figured the record was recorded live because it has such a high energy and intensity to it. But I was curious about the fact that you recorded in such a short period of time. How much preparation do you do going into the studio uh, then? Are you guys practicing for like a week straight, basically, to make sure you have it down really, really well before you're going into the studio? studio? We practice for probably a month straight. Yeah. Yeah. That way, like, we can get... Generally, with Jack, we get tracking done the first day, all of the, like, the base level tracking, and then the next day or two days, if we have two days, is for uh, leads and, you know, feedback and vocals. Studio wizardry. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we like, typically just try to get it as tight, like, live as we can. And then as far as the other stuff goes, like, I think in the past, vocals have always kind of played second fiddle, but this time around, uh, I feel like we're a bit more on top of it, so that kind of breezed by a little quicker, which was good compared to other ones that we did, because I feel like like 75% of the time that we did in studio for the other records was just like me and Trey getting so high trying to do vocals and stuff. Like, like, oh man, this sounds like shit. <laughs> Dude, yeah, I was so high trying to do vocals because we ate an edible. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I actually think it helped a lot for me. Yeah, that's good. It made me scared. <laughs> scared of your own voice. Mm-hmm. It can be scary. So, this sounds like a recording formula that you basically have pretty down pretty much down pat record live in two days with jack shirley yeah i think going forward we would i mean i don't know we we never like book really short times because we want to it's just because we like have to (laughs) um so hopefully the next time we do it we can actually spend a little more time on it (laughs) do you it could help the sound though do you think it does at all or would you totally prefer more time or do you think maybe the condensed schedule helps get get something out of you i have a sneaking suspicion that no matter how much time we had in the studio we would get the live tracking done in like a day yeah (laughs) i think like it would be it would be just more time to do fun shit and try and figure out more stuff yeah we we never really get too much time to like fuss over the the tones and stuff so i think going forward yeah at least personally i'd like to like put some more stock into that so how'd the relationship with uh bar none records start as i mentioned i can't remember if we were on mic or off mic but you know glenmara's the best and they're a great label how'd that start i think it was because uh we were friends with Justice Prophet, who was on the label, and um, Barnan like hit us up to play a show with someone else, like another band on the label, and I think that's kind of how we like got to know that label. Yeah. yeah. And then we like sent them the record, and they liked it. Yeah, that was a pretty quick turnaround too. I feel like by the from the time we emailed them, 
the record to when we zoomed with them to like talk about signing was probably like a month and a half or something. Like not a super long turnaround for that, which was good. And was it, they seemed was it Mark that said he just will listen to any band that Justice goes on tour with or yeah. plays with? Yeah. Just like out of principle. And I was like, yeah. and so you played with him and I listened. It was really good. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank you. Cool. Yeah. Hell yeah, Bar None is a great label. Shout out to them. Okay. Now we're going to play a couple of tracks from Pardoner's new album, Came Down Different. Hey, I know you're going to like what you hear. So head to pardoner.bandcamp.com to get Came Down Different on vinyl. We're going to hear Donna Said. Then we're going to hear Lucky Day, and we're going to hear the title track, Came Down Different.
Hey, we just heard three tracks from my guests. Pardoners, brand new record came down different. We heard Donna said Lucky Day and the title track came down different. You can get a copy of the album on vinyl via pardoner.bandcamp.com or the Bar None Records website, bar-none.com. All right, partner, now you picked some records from my record collection, and we're going to talk about the ones you selected. This first one, I got to say, I think it's the equivalent of basically hitting the Daily Double in Jeopardy, because Yellow Tango is probably my favorite band. And this version of Today is the Day on the Today is the Day EP is my favorite Yola Tango song. Prefer it. Definitely prefer it over the slower version on Summer Sun. So glad to see we're in agreement on that. Yes. Um, Yeah. uh, It's kind of weird. It's like kind of a testament to how good that band is that in what I think is probably their weakest like studio record like probably the best song that I think they have they ended up just scrapping and putting on an EP which was funny um but yeah I would agree better than the Summer Sun version for sure what's your favorite Yola Tango record cover to cover cover to cover probably um either Painful or Electro Pura Hell yeah. yeah, I love painful. painful. That's the right answer, dude. Yeah, right. as far as all the songs. I'd say painful yeah, I like is probably the mine. A lot. I like the early ones too. Yeah, New Wave Hot Dog. Like yeah, President, Yellow Tango and um, stuff. Yeah, it's such a cool era for that band because their story is just they weren't really musicians, they kind of just started out. All those records are like solid yeah. college rock records, stuff that you'd hear on college rock radio. And then they just kept going and kept at it and became better and better and yeah. better. And it's just such a great story. I know. For a band. And uh, it's, yeah, it's like kind of funny. I think Painful is the second one with James McNew, right? Um, yeah. So it's like kind of funny, like how much he kind of shapes their sound in that way because you can like kind of hear him really distinctly on every record after that and he like sings you know he like i think he sings stockholm syndrome which is also one of the stronger uh yola tango songs probably has my favorite guitar solo of all time on it yeah i love james mcnew me too love you james (laughs) mcnew we love James. Yeah, I also remember listening to an interview with Ira, and he said in the beginning of um, their band, he was always going to play rhythm guitar, and they kept trying to find a lead guitarist, and they would just not work out for whatever reason. And then he was like, and then, you know, you just keep playing guitar and, like, look at how the guy's playing the solo and realize that you could probably just do it, too. It was like, it was like oh, that's how you got that good at guitar? <laughs> it's just like... You kind of backslid into it, and you're like, I guess I'll be the lead yeah. guitarist, too. Yeah. I, Ira Kaplan is, like, the king of, yeah. like, naive 
yeah. guitar freak out shit. Yeah. I love the like way how he, plays. he uses uh, like feedback incorporated into like not even just his solos, but like his songwriting is pretty totally incredible. I mean, yeah, the first track on Painful Big Day Coming, like the the ambient version or whatever. I feel like that was the first song that I heard where I really realized that I like was going to be obsessed with that band because there's like all that weird wailing feedback going on and it kind of it's like a super nice like saccharine song but there's all that weird like menace kind of like under the surface of it yeah that's such a huge strength of theirs they're able to make a simple song sound much more than a simple song the other song i'm thinking of is from the 2013 album um where i never really realized that it's just like him playing the same like chord over and over again yeah yeah great song yeah and it's a sick song (laughs) and i really realized that until seeing them play it live i'm like he's just playing like the same the same thing over and over again i'm pretty sure it's it's just g yeah (laughs) yeah it's pretty sick it's a yeah it's also just like such a strong vocal melody like that i feel like they can carry such a simple thing over like six minutes and make it so cool Great Yola Tango talk, guys. That's awesome. Tilebreaker by Polvo off of today's Active Lifestyles. Big influence for the band. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah. I th- I think that's the first Polvo song I ever heard. Yeah. Um uh, and yeah, it definitely like split my little 19-year-old brain wide open. Damn. Um Yeah, just cuz I had never really thought about guitar playing like that really or like heard really people play like that. Like obviously, yeah, I'd heard some stuff, but I wasn't really aware of polvo until i had heard that song and it just didn't really sound like any other like alt rock that i was listening to at that time i don't really think polvo was like as much in vogue then either or like i don't know like speedy ortiz was coming up and stuff too and there's like some of that in there but otherwise i didn't really hear that kind of stuff going on so much at least in our local scene yeah and tile Breaker was the name of this band for a short period of time. Yeah, for one show. One beautiful, beautiful show. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I want to try to find that flyer. I feel like that was like about exactly six years ago. I think that show was either in late 2014 or like early, early 2015. Um, Because we recorded for the first time in... Yeah maybe march 2015 right so we must have had songs and been playing mm-hmm. a little bit before that or i don't really remember but yeah tilebreaker huge song
next. I've been actually on a big kick with this record recently. Up on the Sun by the Meat Puppets, the song you selected, Swimming Ground. Another just really cool, unique sounding band. And this record from their heyday in the 1980s. Um, I think this one was a, I remember super fondly because the first time I uh, ever toured with Bardner, we were in Trey's Toyota Yaris. <laughs> uh, and it has a CD player and he has meat puppets on CD. And the, that was like the first time I ever really listened to him in earnest. It was like listening to that whole record front to back touring. And I was yeah, seriously. We probably listened to that record yeah. like a hundred times uh, on tour. And it never went Yeah, sour. I still listen to it. No. Dude, that guy, yeah, I know. It's so weird. He's just playing the same thing for so long, but he's playing so fast and like tight. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, I think it's also just like, what a weird band. And to be like mildly in the grunge scene, but it's clearly not that. Yeah, and it's yeah. like. Yeah. Weird proto jam music. I mean, like. also crazy versatile band too. They like started out basically doing hardcore, also, um, and then like yeah, like the first couple Meat Puppets records are like a lot tougher sounding. Um, yeah, and then they went and did Meat Puppets too, which is like kind of crazy yeah. and spacey sounding. Definitely, this was. I mean, they're SST Records band yeah. and. So many bands that started out in the hardcore scene around Los Angeles and not even around Los Angeles in that label that kind of like branched out from that. Obviously, yeah. Minutemen, Black Flag, Husker Du, and the, the Meat Puppets, another prime example of the type of creativity that was going yeah, on in SST Records in the 80s. Meat Puppets is the only Arizona band I can think of that I really like. Uh, which is weird. I kind of forget that they're not from any like major hub city. They're like kind of desert freaks, which is cool. The yeah, they're from Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think Green on Red might be from Arizona too, but I'm not sure. Um, maybe. I read a really funny thing recently that John Frusciante was like he tried out for the Meat Puppets after he got kicked out of the Peps. <laughs> <laughs> um he like showed up on the kirkwoods like front lawn because they had like they all lived in that house for a long time and he like just walked up holding his guitar not in a case and was barefoot and they were like how did you get here man and he was like i don't know <laughs> guys i remember when john frusciante rejoined the red hot chili peppers last year and i was like i did not know he left the red hot chili peppers <laughs> Dude, yeah, that was a thing everyone cared about <laughs> like woke up to the news. Like, oh shit! Oh shit! I was like, wait, I didn't know he ever left the band. I mean, yeah, I will say I'm in no way a, a big Peppers fan, but he's a really good guitar player. Yeah, there was this funny because uh, Matador reissued uh, all Gang of Four's early records, and Flea credits Andy Gill as a really big influence, and then. He produced one of their records in the 80s, like before Mother's Milk or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and apparently the sessions went really bad. And they saw some of his recording notes in like a marbled notebook. And for a song, I guess, 
subtitled police helicopter, the only note that Andy Gill had about it was shit. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we love shitting on the Red Hot Chili Peppers on the Look at My Records podcast. So happy for the four of you to be here with me for that. Just Kiedis. Just Kiedis. Yeah, just Anthony Kiedis. No disrespect. I mean, I've had Californication yeah. on CD in fifth grade. But I feel like as a society, yeah, we all no. moved on. Red Hot, Stadium, Arcadium. And then, yeah, like everyone was excited. John and I was like, who missed this? Like, <clears throat> I tried to watch that documentary like kind of recently. And uh, yeah, it's pretty. <laughs> I just like it's if you're into that sort of thing, everyone. <laughs> you're into being punished, go ahead and watch it. <laughs> yeah, Shortage is a fun yeah. read, though. His, uh, his uh, biography yeah. or his autobiography? Yeah. I haven't Anthony read it. Kiedis. Yeah, I remember a lot of heroin stories. I never read it, but everyone was like, yo, you did a lot of heroin. I was like, I know. Yeah, I've, I know. I've heard the songs, dude. I've heard Under the Bridge yeah. a million times. Dosed. I know uh, Anthony Kiedis did a lot of heroin. It's sort of just an adaptation of the song Under the Bridge. Yeah, it's hard not to listen to that band and just think, like, if there was a different singer in this band, like, this would be a good band. (laughs) One last dad joke about the Red Hot Chili Peppers that I'm pretty sure I didn't come up with, but I'm going to take credit for it anyway. Dave Navarro was in Red Hot Chili Peppers for one hot minute. (laughs) (laughs) i'm taking credit for it even though i feel like it's so obvious that someone else had to come up with it first i mean yeah navarro was a natural fit for that band the nipple rings come on yeah dude dude has sensitive nipples man yeah he looks like uh he looks like the guy spider from school of rock yeah yeah he's replacing also, didn't they, like, not like him, which is funny? Because, like, Dude, why did you choose? James Addiction, on the other hand, kicks ass. That's yeah. a good band. Also, love his work on Ink Masters. Great show. Next. Higher Ground by the Feelies, one of my favorite, favorite bands. A big band in the Hoboken, New Jersey scene in the 80s and early 90s. And they reformed 13 years ago, still going strong. They play a handful of shows every year, and I go to every one. Nice. And they're amazing. And I'm so glad you picked a song from Only Life because it's oh, sick. one of the records that was reissued about five years ago, but not on streaming. Right. So not everyone is super familiar with that, this record in Time for a Witness. And Higher Ground, great song. Yeah. Yeah, it's my favorite Feelies record for sure. Yeah, love that record. Um, I think it's also the first record of theirs I heard, so I'm probably like just predisposed to like it. I had a roommate in college who gave it to me on CD. Um, uh, yeah, I think like the first track is the the album title it's only live. title yeah yeah which is pr- one maybe my second favorite to higher ground um but yeah tasty guitar work really uh nice songwriting just a good rocker yeah 
Solid rock. And bar none alumni, yeah. man. They're, well, they're still, they're still on bar none when they put out their next record, hopefully next year or something. I don't know. I was pretty blown away to like look at bar none who had like kind of started the conversation with us and like they had you know the feelings yeah. on and the other tango yeah. like pretty awesome yeah. thing to see man i credit bar none with getting me into the feelings i i had glenn morrow on this podcast like three years ago oh. and we were talking about it and i said Bar none reissuing the first two Feelies records in 2009, which is the year I graduated from college. I remember reading a review of this record and thinking, oh yeah, I remember this was the band that opened for Sonic Youth last year when they played in Battery Park. And wow. I tried to get tickets, but I couldn't get tickets. Like, oh, I'll check this out. So then I checked it out and I've been a fan ever since. So thank you, Glenn and Bar None, for reissuing the first two Feelies records, putting out the two records they put out since they got back together and then reissuing only life and time for a witness doing god's work oh yeah Fellow San Francisco in Grass Widow, Black Hole off of the Grass Widow EP. Love this band. I know they're not active anymore, but an amazing, amazing band. Uh, yeah, I love Grass Widow. I feel like they never really got their due. I feel like, I don't know, when I first heard them, I was like, this band is going to, you know, rocket into the stratosphere. They're going to be superstars. Um, but I don't know why it didn't happen. I think they kind of got unfairly lumped in with like surf rock and shit. Um, which is still a genre tag I see on their records sometimes, like on Discogs. But, um, yeah, also really crazy guitar work. Like, and it's a urinals cover, which is cool. I think, uh, also Grass Widow was like, one that was cool because it requires like a little bit of digging you know you move to the city and then like you are learning more about it in the local music scene and to like find this a little bit off the beaten path was like a really cool feeling yeah. you know and the, the the on that song on our record fuck you i there's like the line where i'm referencing all the musicians and it's like Ash Bowie and Lou, and Lou is supposed to be a reference to Hannah Lou from um, Grass Widow. Oh, wow. Not Lou Reed. Not Lou Reed. Yeah, that's the big Everyone switch. out there, not Lou Reed. Yeah. Because. You gotta the podcast till the end. Yes. You need that kernel. Yeah. You need that kernel. It's about, yeah, L E W. It's not Lou Barlow. No, it's not Barlow. Yeah, it's not Lou Barlow not either. Barlow. Shit. It's Hannah Lou. <laughs> you guys are slighting all these Lou's out there. <laughs> all these indie rock Lou dudes. <laughs> <laughs>
we're wrapping up the playlist with Slick as Snails by Uncle Bob Pollard. Love that guy. Off of Speak Kindly of your volunteer fire department. Yeah, it's a cool record. Um, I've been listening to a lot of uh, his like solo stuff, but love GBV. Um, but that song is so good. Yeah, I basically consider myself a GBV super fan now, whereas five years ago, I've been in the Guided by Voices Facebook group for as long as I can remember. And I remember thinking, well, these super fans are really crazy. <laughs> and then every year, I find myself morphing into one of these Guided by Voices super fans. Where I was like, yeah, I need uh, an original pressing of Propeller <laughs> right <laughs> now. I, I need suitcase, volume, <laughs> whatever, now. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of a music nerd dream, isn't it? It's like you just can infinitely look into all the yeah. albums and the shit. And like, I thought I was getting a handle on GBV. And then Trey's like, well, have you heard his solo <laughs> stuff? No. I was like, God. Yeah. I mean, yeah, man, you heard his record with Tommy Keen. Yeah. <laughs> Alien Lanes is another CD I have in my car that I have listened to probably like a million times. Just like, <laughs> it's just like in the CD player, like for like months straight. I also think they're like the gold standard for like, kind of like what we we're talking about with Yola Tango, the slightly askew pop song where it should just be like a normal, nice two minute pop song that for some reason feels slightly menacing. Like they're all really good at that. Yeah. And I kind of like love the that short idea. Song format thing is definitely something that like, uh, like even on our record or whatever, like the really short songs, I definitely probably, I don't think we would have felt as inclined to do that without listening to a lot of guided by voices and stuff. Gardener, thank you so much for being here today, Max, River, Colin, and Trey. You're lovely, lovely people, and everyone. Came Down Different is the new album. It's out on Bar None Records. Thanks for being here. What's next for the band? Are you going to get in the studio again this year? Are you hoping to tour in the fall late fall what's what's on the uh, agenda ideally both but we'll see what god allows Sick. <laughs> definitely touring whenever that seems like actually reasonable you know i'm sure we could all drive to like a city in like ohio and maybe play once yeah. <laughs> but like uh, touring whenever we can getting back into the studio whenever we can yeah yeah i always uh i always want to on our records i always really want to do the james bond thing where like you write like partner will return in blank you know like with this record but 
it's always a little too unknowable. <laughs> yeah, but we will return. <laughs> hey, and when you eventually come to New York, first round is on me at the partner gig hey. at whatever venue it will <laughs> Thanks, be Thanks, Tom. At. Sick. My pleasure. Partner, thank Love you. you Thanks, man. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Tom. You the best. All right, we're closing up the program with one more track from Partner's brand new record came down different. We're going to hear the last track, which we talked about multiple times during this interview. It's called Fuck You. Again, get the record at pardoner.bandcamp.com. Apple 4.